what motivates me besides, you know, work ethic or patient care? Like what would motivate me to stay in this position or at this company? And I had those discussions with many people I worked with and they were kind of like, well, that's a good point, but I don't know, <laughs> you know? And I, I would say, well, how do you expect to retain me with as an experienced provider? And they would say, I don't know. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant, been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very happy to host our guest, Mr. Christian Gomez, physician assistant. Today, we're gonna be talking about a few things, including how the EMPA working environment varies, the development of the EMPA as a leader, and options for a EMPA outside of emergency medicine. Christian, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Omar. I'm excited to join. Appreciate it. Christian, why don't we start off with uh, telling folks just a brief story of your journey to becoming an emergency medicine PA. We all have common roots sometimes, but also we, we sometimes take some distinctive paths. So I was born and raised in Massachusetts and uh, ended up going to, well, I guess uh, I, in college, I was thinking about going to medical school. Um, didn't really plan that out well. And then somebody suggested that I look into PA school. So it was something I didn't immediately know about. And this was about 12 years ago. But um, so I applied and got in and I went to a school called Mass College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, which is in Boston, Massachusetts. And you know, really just loved that fit for, for being a PA. I don't think I was, you know, really prepared to do medical school and what that all entailed. So it was, you know, luckily I made the right path, but, um, but yeah, so I, um, my program was about three years long, a little bit longer than some other ones. And then in that program, I met my wife, uh, Hillary, who is also an ERPA. We got married and then shortly after school moved to Chicago and that's where I got my first ER job, which kind of happened. Uh, it took me a little bit to get there. Um, it was hard at that time to just jump into an ER job um, in a different city. So it took me a little bit, but I uh, worked in Chicago ERs uh, for three years and then moved to Nashville eight years ago, kind of randomly, um, but I've been doing ER uh, there since I moved. So that's kind of my story um, during or during PA school and before. I was also a nursing assistant, kind of just on a med surge floor. And then I was a ER tech for a little bit at uh, Children's Hospital in Boston as well. So that gave me a little bit of kind of insight into the different different units and, and hospitals that, that uh, we can work at. Well, thanks for that background. I'm sure that there's a number of listeners that can identify with elements of your pathway and your journey saying, yeah, that, that kind of sounds like me. Yeah, yeah, I did that or others that are hearing say, wow, that's a little bit of a unique journey. I'd never heard of that. 
So uh, Christian, for a PA to be adequately prepared to enter into EM practice full-time, I've often said there's, there's a spectrum of ways that that gets done. That could either be through OJT, on-the-job training, that could be through some kind of post-grad academic education, or that could be some kind of post-grad training uh, program that's sponsored and developed by a specific employer. I believe that how a new grad PA breaks into the EM workforce today has changed greatly than when you and I first entered the market. When you first started to practice, would you say that a prospective emergency medicine PA had to be very daring to convince employers to take a chance on them and and, and give them a job? Yeah, I think it is different. I mean, it was tough back then too. Um, I think now there's just so many other options for companies. Like there's lots of nurse practitioners coming into the field and there's many more PA candidates so that your, your pool is much bigger that they're pulling from. I would say that probably the best new grad PAs or new PAs that I've worked with in the ER have had some type of paramedic experience, EMT, um, something like that, ER tech, where they it just takes a special breed of person to understand the flow of the department, the urgency, and just being able to read a sick patient quickly. Um, so I always recommend for prospective uh, PAs that are interested in, in emergency to do one of those fields a little bit. I think I was thinking about this last night. So there's PA residencies for the ER, and I think it's a really great idea if done appropriately. However, there's many companies that do it and do it poorly. I think that that's a really good option because, again, there's you may think you want to do ER, but then you actually get in and you're overwhelmed. There's people that are not teaching you well. And these residency programs, if they're set up correctly, they have curriculums and specific providers that are supposed to be teaching you. And also, I think... So these larger hospital systems or companies, they may staff multiple ERs. So let's say you're a new grad and you do this residency, but it turns out, you know, you're just not quite as quick as another candidate. That might be okay. Maybe they should move you to like a standalone ER or a lower volume ER. It doesn't mean that you, you know, just shouldn't work there. So I think that there's ways to set up new candidates for success without just throwing them in. Um, And I think for employers, it's kind of like, you never really know what you're going to get. Somebody might interview well and have a great track record, but then ultimately when they get on the job, that site or institution is not a good fit for them. Um, So I was just thinking about that last night. I don't know. I'm sure there's, you know, facilities that do it really well in my experience, the places I've worked at that have done it have ended up just fizzling out the program because it just doesn't, they're just not invested in it or it's just not working out well. But anyway, I think that would be a good fit for some, for some people. Yeah. You, you hit on, so you've already stolen my thunder on a few questions. <laughs> and I, I, no, I, no, I, I appreciate your, your insight on this and something we're going to touch on a little bit later. I've often described the proliferation of the NPPA profession, certainly in emergency medicine, as a runaway train. It's this capability that just grew and and became faster and faster. And when that happens, it's hard for players in the market to wrap their arms around it and define it like employers or even training institutions. So people try to define it and there's no universal agreement. Again, comparing an emergency medicine physician 
who's completed a residency and they're board certified. There might be a little bit of variability. Sure, there is among us uh, such physicians who finish that, but there's such a universal experience that you know what you're getting from an ER doctor, an ER doctor, an ER doc who's finished that. Obviously, we cannot say that with PAs and MPs. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, I've worked with NPs that had former ER nursing experience and they've transitioned really well. But I've also worked with some that have really had trouble moving that thought process from giving drugs to actually uh, coming up with the game plan. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and so I think that that, you know, as a PA, you really need to market yourself as your training is very different. So you're really focused on developing the plan and the follow through and the disposition rather than an NP who may their training may be more focused on bedside care and things like that. Not saying that we all can't uh, eventually do the same, you know, type of stuff, but, but yeah, I think that that's a highly marketable trait that we have in PA training is that we have broad in-person rotations across the whole board. So we see everything during training and that's not what, these NP programs are necessarily doing. Okay, great. Um, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, I believe that the workforce uh, landscape has changed due to multiple factors. These are just a few of them. I've already talked about the proliferation of NP and PA schools. Also, there's a younger average age of graduates. The demands on EDs and emergency physicians are greater than they used to be. Insurance company reimbursement cuts. Private equity moving into emergency medicine staffing. Different EDs have different demands for their specific site, and they have different resource pools. So some PAs have been trained to manage sicker and more complex patients compared to other PAs who just didn't have that experience. What changes have you seen across your career, Christian, in the EMPA workforce landscape regarding the scope of EM practice? And why do you think those changes have evolved or occurred? Yeah, I think you definitely hit on it. Uh, you know, it's really site specific. And I think that, you know, I've worked in kind of community ERs where you need to be really good at um, kind of fast track complaints, but also sick patients. And then I've worked at, you know, hospitals where you admit over 25% of the patients you see. So most of those are, you know, relatively sicker patients. Um, I think, so what it boils down to is that there's going to be different PAs that have different skills that fit better in one of those facilities. You know, if you're admitting patients all day, you need to be really good at talking to admitting physicians and specialists um, and just really deciphering out the plan for those patients. Whereas, you know, at freestanding ER, Omar, like we've worked out together, you just need to move patients very quickly. And usually they're not sick, but you are just kind of churning and burning so they say, but so that's all very skill dependent for different people. And it's sometimes hard for a PA or a provider, any provider to kind of switch between those roles. I would also say that I think that it's important as a PA, as you are in the ER to kind of decide what, what you want your scope to be. I would say probably a few years ago, I don't know, I guess seven or eight years into ER work, I decided that I wanted my scope to be kind of set at a certain amount. I don't really want to be the person that intubates or runs codes because basically I don't see enough of those patients to feel confident in doing that. And I never really got the training to do that well. So I kind of capped myself 
at that scope personally. And that made me not feel like I had to always be getting better. I could just really focus on what I was good at. And I think that helped me, you know, a lot less stress on my mind. And it also allowed me to say, okay, this is where I draw the line in my own practice. I'm going to go grab the doctor to help me with this. And I think that it's good for, you know, PAs to discover that it takes years to know uh, where you draw your own line. But, um, but that scope it can also be, because we're able to do just about everything. It's just a matter of what you're comfortable with. And, uh, and also your, you know, your, your docs you work with, your other colleagues are going to understand that too. And so there's less pressure on you overall because everybody knows what lane they're in. There's, there's one thing that I, was, I did not expect to hear from you. I'm very glad you shared this. This shows your years of wisdom. And a lot of it has to do with introspection. What you said was being able to identify what is the scope that you want for yourself draw your left and right boundaries, and then be very comfortable with that. Be very comfortable with saying, I'm not going to do these things, but I want to do these things. And then that allows you to to get really good at the things you want to be. I think over the years, again, this profession has grown so fast and we move so fast in ER that it's just ingrained to us. You know, we get out of PA school, if you go into emergency medicine, uh, churn and burn and keep learning to do the next procedure, the next highest procedure. And just be mm-hmm. just be more high speed and more high speed and more high speed. You kind of get on that automatic conveyor belt, and you might not stop to do what you've just offered and say, do an inventory of yourself, do a little bit of introspection. Are there? Do you really want to do all those things, or are you just doing them because you think that's the next evolution for you? Because if there's things you don't want to do. That's okay. Be comfortable with it. And then be really, really good at the things that you are comfortable. I think that's such an important message that you just gave out for some of our junior clinician leaders, but also, quite frankly, Christian, for a lot of mid-grade experienced clinicians that just find themselves five years into it, six years into it, and they're on this conveyor belt. And and they just heard what you said, and hopefully they're saying, I'm going to now think about what is it that I really want to do. Uh, The second thing that I wanted to touch on, you know, Quick warning for any junior clinicians listening about Fast Track. Totally dependent on the site, but you could churn and burn, and there's a certain level of experience that you have to have to know you're not running past hidden pathology. That's probably the thing that's the most scary about a Fast Track because everybody else expects you to operate at a very quick rate, churn and burn, including nursing staff. And they might give you a hard time or wonder, hey, why are you stopping to do test A, B, and C? This is fast track. And and something speaks out to you to say, I know this is fast track. I know you don't think there's anything wrong, but there's something about that. Quick side note, I took care of a kid on a shift where I think I saw 38 in a 12-hour shift, which is crazy. And uh, I won't bore everybody with the details, but something that he'd said and presented concerned me for myositis. He'd had typical cough, cold fever, and he was aching, rubbing his legs. Anyway, long story short, he had a CK, the highest I've ever seen in a pediatric uh, patient, of 28,000. Nice. And, well, and he just had a mild fever. So right. off he goes to, to, to Vanderbilt. Uh, you know, nurses were like, how did you know that? And I constantly says, I didn't know that. That's the whole point. If I knew that ahead of time, I would just put my finger on him and say, send him. It's right. these differentials that we have to entertain when we're moving at a very fast rate. And quite frankly, Christian, went home that night 
prayed to God and said, thank you for not letting me miss <laughs> yeah, this yeah. and passing this kid on and say, he's got nothing but a fever. Well, um, and communication is so key, right? So like if you're going to not just order, you know, a flu, whatever, like a COVID swab on a kid and you are going to do labs or anything in more in depth, if you're explaining that to the nurse immediately, like, hey, I know this seems like it's straightforward, but I'm really worried about this and this is why then your whole team kind of understands, okay, they're actually, they have a thought process behind their madness, you know? So there's so much about communication. Totally agree. I, I've a hundred percent agree. I've made more friends with nurses explaining to them. So they knew where I was coming from and then like, okay, he's not just pulling this, you know, out of the air. He's got a reason. So good. Yeah, great tip. For sure. I described earlier this trajectory of the EM NPP workforce, like a runaway train uh, proliferation of folks jumping into the workforce and multiple changes in the business of ED. And the practice of EM itself has uh, changed. And you put all these things t together, and it's difficult for leaders of emergency medicine uh, to understand how NPs and PAs in emergency medicine should be used. So if, a few quick questions, just from a clinical perspective alone. Do you see highly skilled PAs? Have you seen them in your career being underutilized? Yeah, and, and I think that it really boils down to your company and your site and how how they're looking at their workers, right? So if you know if you have a site that sees mostly, let's say, fast track patients, but you have a provider that has experience with doing admitting patients and seeing complex sick patients you know, that should be constantly evaluated by your leadership team and trying to make sure that that provider is not getting bored, that they're being, you know, utilized appropriately. Do they want, you know, to start seeing different types of patients? Um, and I think, you know, I really, I've worked at so many different ERs and it's very rare to have kind of in-depth conversations about how the PA feels in their practice and, are they, yeah, are they bored? Do they want to do more? Like there is, you know, trying to see if the, the provider wants to grow um, overall is, is just really rare in my, in my experience. Have you also seen a, a growing issue with junior PAs unfairly being thrown into deeper waters of patient acuity? Yeah, for sure. And I think that yeah, a lot of sometimes the, you know, the companies are just are desperate and they just need somebody to fill those shifts. But again, you know, you know, the company doesn't necessarily know what they're getting when they hire this person. And it's there's a lot of um, personality traits uh, that make you successful, too. So I think it comes down to just making sure that those junior PAs have a good support structure. Um, and if you no, you don't have that. You don't have docs willing to teach. You don't have PAs willing to precept. Then it's probably not a good idea to hire somebody new. You need to set them up for success. And that doesn't always happen. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy. And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EM, NPs, and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, 
than emergency physicians and EMNPs and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io, and when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. Let's stick with this theme, this topic of utilization of EMPAs. Do you see a role for EMPAs to serve as leaders on hospital committees like a credentialing committee or like a peer review or an adjunct to the medical executive committee? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're capable of doing all those things. I think that, and again, I'll just say as a caveat before we go further with the other questions, my experience as a PA has been amazing. And there's been good and bad things about the companies I've worked for. But what ended up frustrating me is that I didn't see myself moving forward at all. So I think that it's more about, you know, the hospital administration and most company administrations are not thinking of PAs that way. So as they're thinking about, you know, different protocols are initiating different review boards, things like that. A lot of those roles will go to RNs in the ER, um, in my experience, or MDs or something like that. And I think we're just not considered as much. And I would advise, and maybe it's just because we're not pushing to do that. Um, So I started, you know, later in my, like in the last couple of years, I started asking to do those things and I wasn't met with any pushback, but everything just fizzled out. You know, nobody followed up with me. They didn't, you know, I had some meetings with different administration, recommended some things and then nothing happened from it. So it was more just, I didn't feel valued (laughs) for, for my feedback on that, but we can, I mean, we're seeing all types of patients in all different settings, and we should really be involved in those decisions as well. I've had similar experiences like you where uh, I, I'm not uh, characterizing you, I'll characterize myself, where I went through a period of being the good idea fairy, and I wasn't met with resistance. There just wasn't like enough of a, a emotional or an energetic follow through to see it to, to fruition. You know, I, I sat back and analyzed it and realized, you know, it's tough to create something from nothing. It's easier to expand on something that ex- exists. So I found that the way I was able to politely muscle my way into hospital administration organizations, specifically cred- like credentialing, um, I found myself being the chairman of the licensing board in Tennessee for PAs. And I remember going to the credentialing uh, folks and saying, do you know exactly what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do and what are the requirements are for supervision and signing? And they said, no, not really. I said, well, you know who does? Me. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's what I, I am one and, and I regulate that. And I often use that analogy. I don't know any profession that would allow a licensing regulatory board to be staffed with people that were not from their profession. So (laughs) nurses would not allow respiratory therapists to sit on their licensing board and regulate them. Uh And so if we're employed in the emergency department or in the hospital, 
it would just follow that you might want to have one or two of us on some committee or at least an adjunct uh, to a regulatory board say, well, you know about your profession. You should probably help us regulate it. So I, I've, I've often found that part interesting. Do you see a role for EMPAs to serve as leaders within the staffing company itself, like on a corporate level? And if so, what does that look like to you? And, and, and what are the benefits of doing that? Yeah. And let me just say, Omar, you're probably the most knowledgeable PA I've ever met or worked with as far as regulations and different, uh, you know, just about our role in general. And that says a lot for me, who's worked with hundreds of PAs before. So you've done a great job with that. Um, Too kind, too kind. (laughs) um, Yeah, I think that it's important. I mean, the way I've started to look at companies that, that run emergency medicine programs is that if you were another company and you had, you know, basically two different people that you hired and that's it, like, you know, docs and PAs or NPs, you would want those people represented in all of your meetings because they're equally important to your company, right? Like you can't do one or the other, you can't function without these people. So most companies everywhere have representation from all of their important staff members at least to some degree, or asking their input. So, yeah, absolutely. PA should be involved in those higher level meetings, um, department meetings, you know, everything like that. And maybe that's just the lead PA or the regional PA or whatever. But um, but they should also have a good sense of how, you know, how hospitals in their network are treating or, or how other PAs in the network are faring and just have like a good grasp overall of how the company's doing. It's, it always seems to come down to like a site level thing, which is always strange to me because if it's a company that has a broad network of, of places, like all those people should be interacting and PA should be talking with other PAs at different sites and seeing how things are going better or worse. And, uh, and yeah, that just involves higher level of um, PA involvement and input. Not to put too much of a military slant uh, on this, but uh, <laughs> military organizations and echelons have different staff uh, functions and staff sections. And this is what helps bring a diverse organization from home of record to wherever you need them to go to conduct an operation and, and, and come back. And one analog that I certainly see as an opportunity is personnel. If I had a corporation of a staffing group, I wouldn't want to offer, extend these opportunities to be nice to folks because I want them to feel like they're heard. I would be selfish about it. I would do it because I want good input. (laughs) I want another set of eyes. And I I might have a a PA uh, or or an NP involved in personnel, interviewing and hiring. I might have another one whose sole focus is involved on the operations, clinical operations in the ED. And I might have a third, not might, I would definitely have a third one. All their job is training training standards, CME, edu- education. And uh, again, as you said, I would do this from a selfish point of view that I would want to know from their perspective how PAs and MPs operate, what makes them tick, what's important to them, what's going to make them move, what's going to incentivize them. Asking physicians to do this for us goes back to all the comments we've exchanged so far on this podcast. That folks don't know what to do with us. They, they, they can't define us just yet. So why would we have them regulate us just exclusively? Uh, we should have input. So 
Great, great uh, thoughts from you. Let's switch now to a different universe altogether, compensation models. Money can be a tough subject. Everybody wants it. Nobody wants to give it away. Employers want to control and limit their payroll. Makes sense. And clinicians want to maximize their pay. Love that. To complicate this relationship, employers, understandably so, they want to exploit emergency medicine, MPs, PAs, billing ability. Because we could bill 80 to 100% of the physician fees, but they only have to pay us about 30% of the physician wages. I mean, that's a, that's a great return on anybody's investment. What a great profit margin. But to recruit and maintain emergency physicians at certain sites, part of that profit margin that we generate is used to subsidize their pay so that they can get paid rates over $200 an hour, some even exceeding over $250 an hour or even more. So the staffing company is doing well in this model that I've just described. Mm-hmm. The emergency physicians are doing well. And there's a good number of EM, NPs, and Ps that are doing okay also. But there's this ever-growing perceived threat that EMNPs and PAs being in the ED is actually hurting physicians and their trajectory. Do you think when it comes to money, there should be more transparency of what all clinicians bill, what they produce, and what clinicians get paid so that all folks can feel good about their pay or what they do? If Christian is just kicking my butt on shift, I want him to make more money than me because he's either moving faster or he's seeing sicker patients I feel okay that he's making more money than me because I feel comfortable. Do you think there should be this kind of transparency? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that there should be. However, once you see behind the the veil or whatever, then just prepare to be disappointed, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I mean I think that I think that once you you can be pretty content with your pay rate until you realize the discrepancies. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be an ideal system, right? Is that you you all know what each other are making, maybe even per patient per hour, you know? Like if yeah. I, if you saw 38 patients in a 12-hour shift and got paid, I don't know, let's say like $80 an hour, you know, what does that break down to per patient? And then the doctor, let's say they, and even if they're seeing sicker patients, you know, that's obviously a caveat in there, but but just to see how you moved the department, you know, like how that the whole flow of the department was regulated through the 38 patients that you saw. Um, I think that helps. I think ultimately, you know, if you are looking at the doc and they're looking at you and you're thinking to yourself, I could not work this shift without them here. That's the most important thing, whether that's, Mm. you know, and as long as they are aware of that, then they shouldn't be, you know, um, worried at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're getting into these issues where staffing has been so bad at many departments that they're hiring these traveler docs for, you know, time and a half or double time. And then actually they're starting to now cut PA hours to try to make up for that cost. And, and so we're sometimes taking the brunt of it and it just seems, you know, it seems wrong, but I'm also not a businessman, but um, yeah, I think that I think we should all just know our value. I don't know if you're going to ask this next about the the whole salary system and our pay rate, but I have some thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's a great segue. So there's growing voices among uh, EMNPs and PA 
that uh, there's a lack of a graduated plan for us to earn periodic raises. There's a lack of universal benefits that even fast food workers enjoy. For example, 401k matching, PTO. So folks don't know when they take a job, okay, if you're paying me 80, 85, are you saying, this is all I'm going to make for 10 years? Because that's a pretty dismal way for me to get up in the morning and feel good about my job. What does a satisfactory compensation model look like for you? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of years, which has gotten me trying to take my career in a different position. Um, but in the last, I guess, seven to 10 years, well, maybe all of my jobs have all been at a standard rate across the board for all providers. So that means that if you're a new grad PA, you get the same exact rate that I have at 10 years of experience. And while that's you know amazing for that new grad, um, you know, for, for me, what that means is that I don't really have an opportunity to, to increase my, my salary or my rate. I don't understand the logic behind it because if you were taking that difference per hour and let's say you paid the new grad less, you would have all that excess money to give bonuses, to give raises to your experienced mm -hmm. providers. Uh, all these different options. And honestly, when I was a new grad, I was happy with any pay rate, you know, just to get that experience. <laughs> I and remember. Then quick, yeah. And then quickly you can graduate up the, you know, the pay rate uh, flow, but I don't, I can't even think of a company with a successful business model that pays all their employees with the with different experience levels, the same rate. I mean, that just doesn't make much sense to me. I'd be interested to see that's your next podcast episode, figure out who started this and yeah. why that makes sense, you know? Um, so, yeah. And I think that, and then you eventually you get to this point in your career where you're like, well, I've been working really hard and nothing seems to come of it. And I am working with some other people that work less hard than I do, but we all get paid the same. So like what, you know, what is the difference here and what motivates me besides, you know, work ethic or patient care, like what would motivate me to stay in this position or at this company? And I had those discussions with many people I worked with and they were kind of like, well, that's a good point, but I don't know. <laughs> you know? And I, I would say, well, how do you expect to retain me with as an experienced provider? And they would say, I don't know. Yeah. That, that whole, I don't know that you just concluded with you yeah. can throw that into the big repository of what I continue to say, that employers don't know what to do with us yet. They, they've not figured us out. And, and I'm not mad at them for it. I don't think we as a profession have figured us out, uh, contrary uh, compared to nursing. Mm -hmm. Nursing have right. figured themselves out really well. They've advocated yeah. for themselves. They've lobbied for themselves. You look at any directory at any hospital and look at who fills all those uh, positions, leadership positions, nurses. So my, my hat's off to them. They, they've known how to organize. There's been a growing volume of emergency physician voices uh, that have concerns, and, and some are valid. Some are valid over emergency medicine, NP, and PA practice and outcomes. Do you think that those physicians should hold their fellow emergency physicians more accountable for lack of supervision, because in the emergency department, PAs and MPs don't practice independently. They just don't. So if mm -hmm. there's concerns about clinical practice standards and, and, and outcomes, I've always said 
wherever that occurs, there should be a simultaneous discussion with the supervising physician. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's, I think it's really um, person dependent as well. So if you're a newer PA and you're not comfortable with different patients you're seeing and you have questions, you need to ask those questions, but the docs or the people you're asking have to be ready to teach and field those questions. So I feel like, I mean, it's been a while since, you know, my first job, but I feel like the new grads I've met feel more reluctant to, yes. you know, to talk to their attendings um, and are just, and maybe it's the new or newer attendings or the attendings are less ready to teach. I'm not really sure. I don't want to just suppose that because I've worked with amazing attendings, both uh, experienced and fresh out of residency that love doing that. But yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's just part of the doc's role is that they are there to be a supervising physician. So that means that any question is asked is, you know, is not a stupid question because it ultimately they're signing the chart as well. I think it just has to be expected if a doc is hired that they have to be ready to help like that. And if they're not, then that's just as much an issue with the attending or the supervising physician as it is with the PA or NP that is perhaps making these questionable decisions. Yeah, so I appreciate uh, your comments. It seems that the the direction of your comments was more on the one-on-one interaction with Mm -hmm. the supervising physician in real time, which I totally agree and, and thank you for making those comments. I think I was going more towards if there is a concern if, if we're going to talk on a macro level and say, hey, there's a national concern of EM, NPMP practice in emergency medicine, then my initial response is, what kind of organizational systems do you have in place in a department to be doing routine chart checks, chart reviews, documentation? What kind of a systematic way do you have in integrating a new employee, whether they're a new grad or mid-grade, and say, we're going to check your charts for, for this amount of time. We're going to talk about this. and We're going to get together in uh, the first 60 days and give you some feedback. Maybe you're too quick to pull the trigger on the CT. Maybe you're ordering more mono spots than we've ever ordered in 10 years. <laughs> but uh, my, my kind of commentary is more towards the organizational construct. What systems do you have in place so that you could do proper oversight and development of a, of a PA so that we catch undesirable clinical practices or outcomes early and not just wait for somebody to go way off course and then a year later say, oh my God, see, this is why you can't have PAs <laughs> and MPs in the ER. Yeah, no, that would be great. I mean, honestly, there should be like a quarterly review, if not more frequent with every uh, PA, NP or provider just so that and that should be expected. It's not like you're getting your hand slapped or in trouble, but here's what you're doing well. Here's some things we've noticed. Um, and that's kind of hit or miss depending on where I've worked. Um, but I think that would help a lot. So, you know, especially newer PAs kind of know where they stand and what practices they should change. And it should just be an open conversation, you know, and the other, you know, like medical grand rounds, they'll bring up cases that were rare maybe, but maybe things should have been done differently. Um, We don't really have, I don't think I've ever had that in the ER where you have these, you know, cases that you bring up and talk through it and how things could have been done differently, just like a constructive process. 
Um, so that would all be really helpful. Yeah. Again, a, a good plug why, while staffing groups should really consider elevating or developing uh, PAs and NPs into leadership positions so that they can help co-op what Christian just uh, described. That, that's a genius idea of doing an analog uh, of Grand Rant. Genius idea. Um, let's move on to our last topic, exploring options outside of the emergency department for a EMPA or NP who's looking to look elsewhere. Can you tell us about your current unique job experience? Yeah. So uh, just another part of our story or my story is that six years ago, uh, our son Silas was born. And about a year and a half later, he was diagnosed with a rare genetic condition called Angelman syndrome. So right when he was diagnosed, or after he was diagnosed, my wife and I really kind of dove into the science and genetics and advocacy of rare disease. And I quickly realized that was my passion and where my kind of life was heading, you know, in many different ways. But, and then I started to think, well, okay, I work in the ER. That's great. And I'm a PA and I have all this medical knowledge, but how can I translate that into helping uh, either people with Angelman or with any rare disease? Um, and there's a couple of options. You could work clinically, you know, in a rare disease clinic or a genetics clinic, but it's really hard to find those locations and I didn't want to move. And so what I, about a year, yeah, a little over a year ago, I started looking into um, industry roles. And that's a term that they use for basically pharma jobs. Um, and what I, you know, if I brought up pharmaceutical jobs and companies with any PA or NP, and I have, they're like, oh, well, just be really careful. You're going to have to meet all these sales quota, blah, 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 all these things. And what I found out is that there are so many different positions with pharmaceutical companies that have nothing to do with sales and need uh, expert clinician um, kind of experience to do these jobs appropriately. So I started networking with lots of people, called lots of people on the phone, got on LinkedIn, which most PAs don't do. <laughs> you know, you don't need to. And then, and just started talking to people over and over again, connecting with friends of friends, uh, had some interviews. Um, and basically what I found out is that there's a branch of uh, pharmaceutical companies that work in medical affairs. So their specific job, well, there's many jobs, but they are teaching medical information to doctors um, and explaining that in a non-biased way. So they're not selling a product. They have you know, they're not, you know, pushing something that they don't believe in. They're just teaching. And that is something we do all the time, all day, every day, right? In the ER, we're talking, yep. teaching patients, teaching, uh, you know, family members. And so we have all these skills that relate to it. Uh, so anyway, finally, uh, and I also did some work with our Angelman syndrome advocacy groups, um, trying to connect with some of the clinics, figure out how those clinics were operating and then developing some teaching materials uh, and actually work, have been working on a podcast for Angelman syndrome um, education as well. And then that branched me into, now I work for a company called Altergenics. Um, and we are a pharma company that does, kind of deals with really rare diseases. We have all these really cool clinical trials with gene therapy. And my job is to talk to doctors about the clinical trials we're recruiting for. 
So um, I work remotely, I set my own schedule, and I set up meetings with doctors and just discuss the different uh, trials we're enrolling in, answer any questions about the disease state. Um, so there's lots of jobs within that realm where you're just teaching, which I think is, I, I love it. It's fascinating. And just to get back to your point, you know, the benefits and work-life balance are amazing. And my company, and I think this goes across the board with pharma companies, they're automatically, like every year they go over your, what you're doing and they say, this is what you did well, this is what you didn't do well, or this is what you need to work on. And they are automatically looking at you to see if you could do something more for their company. Like maybe you could do this role, which is more advanced. Maybe you need to take on this project. Um, so I really like this, this, the ceiling is, is, you know, is endless for these type of roles. So how, how apropos that you describe this kind of role that has uh, a forward thinking mentality and a developmental pathway available to, uh, you know, if you choose to take it. And we just got through talking about the limitations that are inherently in place right now of being an, an EMPA. Do you see the potential for other EM and P's and PAs to follow your footsteps in, in, in that particular field of, of pharma on a broad level? Yeah, I think that most and, and not many people are aware that you can transition careers like this. And many of them are highly specialized. Like, let's say if you were a PA in oncology, you could easily transition because you have that specific knowledge. But another like pharma term that they use is soft skills. So Basically, that means what personality traits have you learned from your job that translate into other fields? And we have tons of those. We can, you know, in the ER, we talk to, we're good at communication because we have to talk to different specialists all the time that are different. Um, we're good at teamwork because we have to work with the nurses and the whole medical staff and collaborate really well. Um, we multitask really well so we can work on, you know, eight different projects at once, which are different patients we're seeing, but all of those translate over into what you can do in medical affairs. And, you know, the teaching aspect is huge as well. So, um, yeah, I think that there is, it's, it's hard to sell an ER experience without, cause we, we know a little bit about everything. And so, you know, if you do want to pursue these roles, you have to sell yourself as a teacher or get some, maybe some experience with that. So different things you can build your resume around to help benefit your cause. And I think, you know, one of the other things, so some of these interviews, they would ask me, well, what project have you been working on? You know, what, uh, or you tell me about a project you did in the ER. And I was like, well, nobody asked me to do any projects. There's, I've tried to, and they've, nothing's come of it. So there's not, you know, unfortunately we're not, set up to to really move forward in our careers um, so i had to find my own projects that's why i started working with angelman foundation and i did some other stuff doing medical education just on the side so just trying to build my resume because my companies and hospitals were not helping me do that we know how diverse uh the opportunities are for nurses in a hospital system to pick up special projects right You'll get a nurse that'll take on a sepsis project. They'll take on a, a patient education project. They'll, I mean, all kinds of opportunities for, for nurses to develop their non-clinical uh, professional development. But as you said, by and large, for PAs and MPs and emergency department, there's just 
four walls and you reach those four walls very quickly early in your career. And the last thing I wanted to say is, I think, Christian, you just provided a spark for a lot of people <laughs> listening to this podcast that are feel that they may be stuck in a rut in, in their career and are wondering, is there something else for me? Is is this it? So very, very valuable, uh, which you just provided. As we get close to wrapping up here, what are the positive changes that, that you recognize in yourself as a result of having practiced emergency medicine for as long as you have? Yeah, I mean, my, my experience has been really invaluable. And I, I think that, you know, I know I can talk to any doctor about any disease a little bit, you know, because that's what we're supposed to do. So our medical knowledge is really broad. You know, you just develop skills that help you with other jobs as well, like the multitasking. Um, and yeah, I just think that and work ethic too, you know, you're constantly trying to help your team in the department. And um, just those, those skill sets really make you, you know, make you good at any job that you try to get into. Um, so yeah, I've loved my time in the ER and I can still pick up shifts. You know, I, I'm not, I don't have a, like a non-compete clause. I can pick up shifts on the weekends and I will try to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I still love emergency medicine. I was just getting frustrated where my role was being stagnant. <laughs> sure. Completely understand. What book or movie would you recommend to our audience? And this doesn't have to be anything clinical at all whatsoever. Just book or movie oh, that you say, hey. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I so I now with you know with three kids, I don't have much time to read <laughs> or watch movies. But I did so I like podcasts a lot. MRAP is has been the thing that's been the most helpful for me in my practice. There's also an ecgweekly.com website, and I think it's like twenty five bucks a year, and they send you weekly cases. Yep. Um, that are amazing. And yep, then I got it. It's yeah, it's, oh, it's so great. And then um, I would say if you're interested in medical affairs or pharmaceutical jobs, there's a podcast called MSL Talk and they interview basically how do you transition from any role like a PharmD or whatever into these jobs. And definitely, you know, if you're not interested, I don't think you would like it, but it's something that if you want to pursue it, because they they interview PAs on there that have transitioned and do a different job. And I thought that was really pointing me in the right direction and how to get there when I started pursuing this. Oh, no, I, I think this is great. Again, I think there's a lot of listeners that are going to be scribbling down these notes of, of yours. <laughs> um, who is a hero of the department that you'd like to recognize. It really, it could be anybody from the spectrum, from the point you walk in the doors until you leave leave your shift. Anybody at all. <laughs> well, I already mentioned you. I mean, you've been, <laughs> I, I just think that you, you're probably one of the better lead PAs I've had just because of, I just knew you were gonna stand up for me. Um, but also, I mean, I'll plug my wife and I think she's on one of your episodes, but what I've been impressed with her is that she's just as disgruntled as I am, you know, because we work at the same sites, but she still has that passion for being in the ER and helping people. And also she's been a lead PA at multiple facilities. And she, even though she knows how difficult it is to help the workflow and the process and how often nothing comes of it, she still tries. And you know, if you ever get into a leadership or a lead PA position, I think you have to at least try to do that. And it might be like hitting your head against the wall, but 
but ultimately if you didn't try, you know, is it even worth being in that position? So I think that you and Hillary have really tried to do that. So I've always been impressed by that. I've described Hillary at least on three occasions that I can think of right now to other leaders <laughs> as the fire against which water has no chance at all. <laughs> I don't know how she keeps yeah. the fire lit, uh, but she, she finds a way and that that's inspiring. Yeah. And I've never been a lead PA. So, you know, I, I would, I'd be fine leading team members, but that's, I never wanted to, to butt my head against a wall. So that's why I never got into it. But, you know, she sees injustice or processes that aren't going well, and she tries at least. So No, no, uh, I agree. She doesn't let it go. How can folks reach you if they wanted to? Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk to anybody. Um, I've, since I, and I've only been in this uh, pharmaceutical job since October, but I already coached a couple providers I work with in the ER that have wanted to, to change roles too. Um, so I'd probably email is the best way to do it. And maybe I should just start a little consulting business where I point them in the right direction because it is like, it's a totally different mindset, a totally different knowledge base. Um, but it's this, there's no better time I think than right now for PAs to get into industry jobs. It's just, they're really looking for those people. So, Folks, we've been listening uh, to Christian Jomez, emergency medicine physician assistant, entrepreneur, pioneer into other areas of industry. Uh, Christian, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I'm certain that a lot of people found a lot of value in, in what you have to say, and I'm certain that a lot of folks uh, that have more years in, in the industry uh, than less uh, started scribbling notes based on what you were saying. Thank you very much, Christian. Yeah, no problem. That was great. Thanks for having me. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at uh, Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you faced. More importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.